Genesis 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 17. And uh, if there are any, any questions this morning, you can jump on slido.com and type in RevCDA into the prompt, and we'll take a look at, at those questions at the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we, um, we come here this morning, uh, as we always do on a Sunday, the first day of the week, uh, to worship you as your people. We come from all different places and walks of life and uh, experiences and uh, coming off of this holiday season with um, many of us with routines that have been uh, interrupted, in, in some in good ways, some in, in frustrating ways, and um, coming off of a night where many of us probably stayed up too late. Um, I, just, I pray for your mercy and your grace this morning, that we would hear you speak through your word, uh, that we would be, uh, that we would be comforted, that we would be encouraged, uh, that we would be exhorted, um, maybe maybe rebuked. You, you know what we need, Lord, and, and you, you have something for us today, both as individual uh, followers of Jesus and as a people. Uh, and God, I just pray that um, your voice would be loud in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I already said Happy New Year, so I don't need to say that again. 2022, January, uh, tropical storm Anna killed 115 people in Madagascar, Malawi, and Mozambique and displaced thousands. In February, Russia invaded Ukraine. Approximately 200,000 people are dead at this point from that disaster. In March, uh, COVID-19 deaths reached 6 million worldwide. April, global food prices reached their highest levels in over 30 years, plunging more and more people into poverty and hunger. In May, Andy Fletcher, the keyboardist of Depeche Mode, died. June, a 6.2 magnitude earthquake in Pakistan killed over 1,100 people. In July, Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister of Japan, was assassinated. In August, author Salman Rushdie was attacked and stabbed multiple times before he was supposed to give a lecture. In September, Queen Elizabeth of England, the world's longest reigning monarch, died at 96 years old. In October, 158 people were crushed to death in a crowd in Seoul, South Korea during a Halloween party. In November, two Polish citizens were accidentally killed by stray missiles from the Ukraine war. And in December, 31 people that Wikipedia thinks are famous enough to be listed died on Christmas Day just last week. Since I wrote all those stats earlier this week, Barbara Walters died and Pope Emeritus Benedict as well. Why, why am I telling you this this morning? 
all of these people that were killed, that suffered, that knew people that died, none of them began 2022 thinking, this is going to be the year it ends for me. This is going to be the year that changes my life forever. This is going to be the year that shapes our family in ways that we will never quite recover from. It's normal to approach the new year and think about opportunity and progress and possibility and vision for the future. We could probably think back on the year that we've just finished and and list all kinds of amazing things that happened. But there's probably a lot of things that happened last year in our own lives that were painful. We all experienced loss, grief, confusion, pain. People that we love got sick. Some of them died. Our finances were tighter than we wanted them to be. Some of us lost our jobs. Maybe we said goodbye to dreams that we realized aren't going to come true this year. Some of us had friends at the beginning of 22 that we don't have anymore. While it's much easier to create a month-by-month list of amazing things that happened, um, we're not going to focus on that this morning. Abraham's not going to let us. Uh, We just happened to be in Genesis 23 on the first Sunday of 23. And um, we get this little story, this kind of sad little story about the death of Sarah. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is, as we reflect on last year, the difficult things that happened, and think about this year and the reality that there's going to be difficult things that happened this year, what do we do with suffering and loss? As Christians, how are we supposed to approach this kind of thing? I think Abraham's experience is helpful. The first thing I think we see is that in the face of loss, in the face of pain, in the face of even death, we're to be people that mourn. Chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah is the only woman in this story whose age is listed at her death, it, it's that which signifies her importance. Her life mattered, both in the grand plan of God to save humanity, but also to her husband, Abraham. And we see a couple things in Abraham. We see that suffering must be faced. Abraham initiates a defined ritualistic period of mourning for Sarah. He mourned and wept for her. Gordon Wenham in his Genesis commentary says, the use of both terms, mourned and wept, together suggests that Abraham did not just weep aloud but carried out other traditional mourning customs such as rending his garments, disheveling his hair, cutting his beard, scattering dust on his head, and fasting. These rites were carried out in front of the corpse." 
And this is maybe weird for us in our culture. In, a, in an attempt to protect us from pain, we've largely removed this kind of thing from our society. It's pretty rare to see an open casket at a funeral. It's honestly kind of disturbing when you do. Instead of a chance to grieve loved ones, memorial services are designed to be celebrations of life. You know, wear a colorful outfit, bring a funny story that makes everyone laugh. And more and more, even that's being skipped. I talk to people fairly regularly who, who just, the, the, the person that dies specifies that they don't want to have any kind of remembrance. They don't want to have any kind of gathering. They don't want to have any memorial service at all. And they think it's, I think it's because they, they don't want to put their loved ones through the pain of that. They just want, just get on with your life. So we've been taught that grief is so bad and we should work hard to remove it from our experience. And this works for lesser pains too. If, if you, your family dog dies, be sure to get a brand new puppy right away to just cover over that pain. A relationship falls apart. You've got Netflix to turn to and you can just binge watch so you don't have to think about the hurt. In the church, we express this that on, through ideas that on the surface seem really good. We say things like, hey, you know, don't be sad. They're with Jesus now. Cheer up. All things work together for good, you know. When God opens a door, or when God closes a door, he opens a window. And we've all probably said things like this to people who are grieving, who are hurting, who are experiencing loss of some kind. And while it feels like this kind of positive God is good attitude would alleviate suffering, all it ends up doing is robbing suffering of its meaning. The community of God's people can help a suffering person a great deal as long as we bear that burden wisely. Eugene Peterson says, if others weep with me, there must be more to the suffering than my own petty weakness or selfish sense of loss. The community votes with its tears that there is suffering that is worth weeping over. This is the problem for the person that, that lives with a world without God. Like if, if you or, or somebody that you know today is, 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 doesn't believe in a creator, doesn't believe in a supernatural being outside the world, if you're a materialist or a naturalist, it's hard to get any meaning out of suffering. The natural question for the, the atheist or the agnostic is, well, if God exists, why is there suffering in the world? But the, the, the question that we can turn back to them is, well, if God doesn't exist, why does suffering matter? Because deep down, we all have this sense that, that there's something meaningful about life. And when life is lost or when dreams are dashed or when relationships are fractured, there's something wrong there. But that only makes sense if someone beyond us is providing that meaning. Because God is both sovereign and good, the fact that he allows us to suffer means that the process must have a purpose. When we acknowledge that, when we name our suffering and let ourselves and our community experience it, we affirm that suffering matters. This is what we see Abraham do. He grieves over the death of his wife. 
But the second thing we see here is that suffering has limits. In verse 3, when Abraham got up from beside his dead wife, he spoke to the Hethites, I am an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The text doesn't say how long Abraham mourned, but there was a time when the mourning was complete and there were things to do. And again, we, we tend to rush people through this because mourning makes us uncomfortable. We want everybody to be happy. And it's not always helpful to push people through this process. But the fact is, the process does come to an end. Eugene Peterson again says, the subjective sense of endlessness in suffering is, in fact, false. Some of us are suffering a great deal about many things, and there's a temptation to believe that nothing will ever change. The feelings you are having right now will last forever. There is no light at the end of this tunnel, but that's a lie. That's from the enemy. The suffering will change you. Its effects may never completely disappear, but the pain over time becomes easier to bear. Over the Christmas holiday, uh, my daughter Nora and I watched The Lord of the Rings together. And early on in the trilogy, the hero Frodo gets stabbed uh, by the Witch King with an enchanted sword in the shoulder. And he reacts in agony to this wound, and he screams, and he has to go. I'm not going to tell you what happens. It's, watch the movie. But um, throughout the rest of the um, set of movies, whenever he gets near the forces of darkness again, the witch king shows up and he reaches for his wound and he screams in agony because the pain is so severe and so raw and the experience of encountering his enemy over and over again just re-inflames this terrible feeling. But then at the end of the movie, about four years go by, and he's talking to his friend Sam, and he says, you know, the pain never really quite went away. And I love the way Tolkien does this because he points out that in the moment, this pain, this wound that Frodo receives is devastating and awful. And it comes back up in his life throughout his journey as equally devastating and awful. But over time, that changes. It doesn't go away, but it becomes bearable. It becomes manageable. It becomes something that just kind of has to be dealt with. We're called to mourn when we suffer, but we also need to know that suffering has limits. So what does Abraham do with his suffering? He orients it towards the promises of God. Verse 3, Abraham got up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hethites, I'm an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The Hethites replied to Abraham, listen to us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place for burying 
you're dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hethites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. Abraham has a practical problem here. He, he needs a place to bury his wife. He's a foreigner. We've been, been journeying with him through the last 10 chapters. He's come to the land of Canaan, this promised land, this land that Yahweh has said, this is the place that I am going to give you and your descendants, but he has nothing. A little while ago, we saw him get a well that's not appropriate. He needs a place of burial. He could be paralyzed by grief and make a series of foolish decisions. It's never wise to make important decisions when you're deeply grieving. But because he has allowed himself to mourn and that time of mourning is over, he sees an opportunity to reinforce his trust in Yahweh by purchasing land that has been promised to him as a burial plot. And this is, this is incredibly wise of Abraham. It's not a rash decision. It's calm. It's calculated. Abraham has thought deeply about the situation and is going to orient the death of Sarah, the pain that he's felt, in such a way that his faith in God's promises can grow. Abraham purchases this or wants to purchase this land to make this space his and his family's forever because he believes in God's promise that this place belongs to him. We read more about his orientation of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham's looking forward to something that's bigger than himself. And by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland." If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the author of Hebrews ties in Abraham's faith to this idea that there is a kingdom that God is creating, a city built by God that is the destiny of all God's people. And he says, you know, Abraham could have, he could have gone home. He could have gone back to Ur, back to his family. I'm sure he had a family plot there. But because of his faith in God's promises, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his pain and his loss, he stepped towards God in faith. 
and decided I'm going to purchase land in this place that God has promised for me. And Hebrews ties the faith of Abraham in the promised land to our faith in the coming kingdom of Christ. We are people that have been given promises by God. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but 2 Peter chapter 1 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. If you're in a really good headspace, those are pretty exciting verses. But when you're suffering, when you're grieving, they're more difficult to believe. When I feel like I've lost something, do I really believe that I still have everything I need for life and godliness? Do God's promises still apply to me? Suffering is dangerous because it can go one of two ways. Peterson again says, suffering in itself does not lead a person into a deeper relationship with God. It is just as liable to do the opposite, dehumanizing and embittering. And we know people who have chosen that path. When faced with suffering, when faced with loss, when faced with pain, they become hard and bitter and angry. And that trajectory just gets harder and harder over time. Some of the most difficult, angry, bitter people I know had something significant bad happen to them 40 years ago. And that's shaped the trajectory of their life. But Abraham doesn't do this. Abraham chooses to deepen his trust in God through his process of suffering. And so if we're going to be people that orient our suffering towards God, we need to be on the lookout for opportunities to do so. And this is a hard thing to give um, tips on because everyone is different, right? There's no one-size-fits-all way to do this. Everyone's suffering is their own. We all have completely different paths that God is asking us to walk down, and we all have different opportunities to orient suffering towards God. I want to give you two examples of some... um, well-known people that have done this. First one is uh, Nick Vujicic. I never pronounce his name. Vujicic. There's a picture of him. You pro- many of you probably know this man from the internet. Uh, he's born with no arms and no legs. He has a little, he calls it a flipper, his kind of partial foot down there. He's born into a Christian family. He was told that God loved him, that God had a plan for his life. And he tried to commit suicide when he was 10 years old because he could see no other options. Obviously, it didn't work. Things changed for him, though, when he was 13. And he was outside on a soccer field, not able to play soccer, but still trying to participate. And he hurt his foot, the one limb that he has. And he was bedridden for three weeks. And during that time, he began to realize how blessed he was to have that foot. With it, he could do so many things. And he began to think about John chapter 9, where Jesus, um, where we read that as, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. 
His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Nick's suffering is continual. He's not um, looking forward to getting arms and legs anytime soon. His challenges do not end. He has not yet been healed. But his suffering, because of the way he's chosen to orient his life, has given him the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with millions of people, to inspire hope in multitudes of lives. And his story of leaning into God's faithfulness is really inspiring. Second person I want to mention is a man named Jerry Sitzer. He's a professor at Whitworth University in Spokane. I think he's retired now, but about 20, 25 years ago, he was driving in a car with his family, and they were hit head-on by a drunk driver. His mother, his wife, and one of his daughters were all killed instantly. He and his other three children survived. This sent him into a period of great grief and um, questioning the love of God and his place in the world and why this would have happened. In his book, A Grace Disguised, he writes, the supreme challenge to anyone facing catastrophic loss involves facing the darkness of the loss on the one hand and learning to live with renewed vitality and gratitude on the other this challenge is met when we learn to take the loss into ourselves and to be enlarged by it so that our capacity to live life well and to know God intimately increases. To escape the loss is far less healthy and far less realistic considering how devastating loss can be than to grow from it. Loss can diminish us, but it can also expand us. It depends once again on the choices we make and the grace we receive. Loss can function as a catalyst to transform us. It can lead us to God, the only one who has the desire and power to give us life. And we see this played out in the Abraham's actions. He doesn't run away from his loss. He uses his loss and his pain to plant a flag of faith in God. Sarah Sarah will be buried in the promised land, land that Abraham owns. It belongs to him because God said it did. Abraham will also be buried there, as will his son Isaac and his wife Rebekah and their son Jacob and his wife Leah. When Abraham has an opportunity to go a couple different ways in his suffering, he chooses to lean in to trusting in God. And he acts in a way that demonstrates that trust. So when we experience loss, we, we need to be people who mourn. We also need to be people that orient that loss towards God. We also need to be people who count the cost of suffering well. 
Starting in verse 10, we read, Ephron was sitting among the Hethites. So in the hearing of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Hethite answered Abraham, No, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the sight of my people. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, Listen to me, if you please. Let me pay the price of the field. Accept it from me and let me bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, My Lord, listen to me. Land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron and uh, Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed to in the hearing of the Hethites, 400 standard shekels of silver. So Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees anywhere within the boundaries of the field, became Abraham's possession in the sight of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field at Machpelah near Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as burial property. So Abraham knows and intends when he's going to step out in faith to lean on the promises of God here, that it's going to cost him something. And at first, like, there's this kind of weird kind of Middle Eastern bartering thing that's happening, this back and forth, hey, listen to me, no, listen to me. And and it seems like, um, first of all, that the Hethites just want to say, hey, Abraham, you're awesome, do whatever you want. And Abraham says, no, I want to find a specific piece of property and I want to pay for it. And then they find Ephraim and Ephraim's like, no, I'll just give it to you. And you'd think, well, that's nice. Abraham should say thank you and accept a gift, but Abraham doesn't want a gift. Ephraim's offer is polite, but a gift like this in this context could go two ways. Ephron could take it back. He could decide later on that he wants his cave back. And since it was gifted to Abraham, he might try to do that. Or more likely, it could be just held out over Abraham in the future. Hey, Abraham, remember that solid I did you? I gave you that cave to bury your wife in. Now you owe me. Abraham didn't want to be in that position. Abraham insists on purchasing the land. And after all the back and forth, Ephron says, well, how about 400 shekels? And most scholars think that Ephron is uh, way overpriced here that this field is probably worth less than half of that. But Abraham pays it because he wants the land, because he wants to plant his flag of faith and say, this is mine because God has given it to me. And so the question for us is when we are in the process of losing something or someone, when we are in pain and suffering, what is it going to cost us to make the choice to lean into God's promises, to develop our relationship with Him in the midst of suffering? There are easier things than this. Social media, alcohol and drugs, sex, shopping, Netflix, there are so many things that we can pour into our lives that are shortcuts to ease pain, whatever the scope of that pain is. Why put in the hard work and the expense of believing God when there are so many easier things you can do to soothe your pain? Things that seem to cost so little. 
Because see, Ephron is going to call in that favor one day, and you will regret having taken that shortcut. All of us, as we experience things in, these, in our lives that are difficult, we all will be faced with opportunities to take an easy path, to get out of pain, to bypass it, to soothe it, to forget about it without any seeming cost. But there's always a cost. The only way to really honor the suffering that you're experiencing and orient it towards God's promises for you is to be willing to accept His cost for faithfulness to Him. That might be a a physical or a financial cost. It was a financial cost for Abraham, but it's definitely an emotional and spiritual cost because it means living with the reality of your pain and working through it in the context of God's Word and God's people and that's, that's hard. It's way easier to just flip through stuff on your phone and pretend that you don't feel the way you do. So how do we get the resources to pay that cost? How do we, how do we become people that are like Abraham in this situation? And I think the thing that is necessary is we have to recognize Jesus in the midst of our suffering it's easy to disconnect our suffering from God, especially when, when we live in this culture where we don't like suffering anyway, and we, we want to focus on, on the good things. We, um, we sing and, 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 and speak about things like Revelation 21, where we read, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is in humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And that is absolutely true. And it is the hope of our salvation that one day the kingdom of God will come in full and there will be joy and peace and suffering will be no more. But that day is not today. And there's a whole branch of the Christian church that gets that confused. It's, it's, we often call it the prosperity gospel, but the idea that like all of the good promises of God are meant for you right now, and you should not suffer. And if you're suffering, you're somehow out of God's will because God promises these good things for you. But that's totally outside the thrust of the Scriptures. We learn From Jesus himself in John 16, I've told you that these things so that you may have peace, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus promises this to us. We will experience suffering if we belong to Christ because Jesus experienced suffering himself. And not only that, His suffering is the very thing that opens the door for us to be adopted into God's family. Hebrews 2.10 says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
And we recognize this about Jesus on the cross. We see that he is arrested and beaten, tortured, and murdered, not because he did anything wrong, but because he paid for our sins. But this orientation of suffering marks his entire life. Hundreds of years before Jesus is born, we read in Isaiah about him, who has believed what we have heard, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he bore, yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds." We all went astray like sheep, and we have turned to our own way, but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus' suffering and death is the means that God uses to bring about the situation in Revelation 21, where all the tears are wiped away. The tears are wiped away, and death is no more because Jesus' tears and Jesus' death have brought them to nothing. So our suffering becomes meaningful when we understand it through the lens of Jesus. We live in a world in which God not only uses suffering for our good, but also enters into suffering himself to identify with his people and save us. It's only when we understand that God enters into our suffering that we can really begin to allow him to use it for our good. See, he's not out there manipulating the universe. Jesus leads us through suffering because he's experienced it himself. And according to Hebrews, he is our promised land. He is the future that we've been given. And Throughout Scripture, we're, we're never commanded to seek out suffering. We shouldn't be people that, that um, long for suffering. But we need to be people that recognize that it will come for us at some point, And we have a choice on how we're going to deal with it. And we see in Abraham's life that he dealt with his suffering, his pain, the death of his wife by leaning into the promises of God by using difficult circumstances to reinforce the fact that he trusted in Yahweh to save him. So this morning, in, on the first day of 2023, I am confident that we will have really wonderful, life-giving, joyful experiences this year. We can pray for that. We can expect that. We can plan for and direct our lives towards those things. But I'm also confident that I have no idea what kind of suffering I will experience this year. Just like those hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world whose lives were 
radically changed in 2022. None of them woke up January 1st and went, you know what, this is going to be the year. We have no idea. But I can know that whatever that suffering looks like for you and for me, we will have the opportunity to lean into trusting in Christ more for all of our life and that nothing that He has planned for us and no way that we suffer will be without a purpose. Let's do some Q&R. When it says He bore our sicknesses, does that refer to the fact that He is in control when we are sick? or that he got sick when he was on earth, or both? Well, I think, I think Jesus probably did get sick when he was on earth. I think he's human in every way that we are, except without sin. And, and um, while sickness is a, I would say, a um, consequence of being in a sinful world, it's not sinful itself to get sick. You don't need to confess that when you get a cold or the flu. But when Jesus, when, when the Isaiah says that the Messiah will um, bear our sicknesses and carry our pains, I think he's saying that, that he's going to be the one that is responsible for, for bringing those um, to judgment and, and getting rid of them. He's the one that's going to bring them to the place where we can say in Revelation 21 that there is no more death, there are no more tears. Jesus is the vehicle by which our sicknesses are removed from us. Why are we commanded in the New Testament to rejoice in our suffering? Count all our trials as joy. Yeah, that's one of those things where, like, you can, you can take some verses and put them in this column and have a really solid theology of a certain topic, and then, but you have to leave out a whole bunch of other verses over here in this column. And there's a lot of things in the Scriptures that, that seem like they're in tension with each other. And I, I don't think that is in tension with the idea that we're called to mourn. Because just like Jesus right? He, for the joy that was set before him, we read, he endured the cross because he was more interested in the outcome of the suffering than he was in the process of the suffering. The outcome of the suffering is you and me, that he, he redeemed a people for himself. And so, I think when, when Paul and James both encourage us to be joyful in our suffering, they're doing the same thing that Abraham's doing. They're orienting us towards the promises of God, not because suffering is awesome and we should love it so much, even if we're going to go jump in the lake today <laughs> to suffer. But that's really a good example, isn't it? Like, I, I talked to Brian a lot about this kind of stuff. And, and the idea that you would take a cold shower or go jump in the lake is, is, seems counterintuitive because it honestly hurts. 
but it works in your body something that is actually good for you. It strengthens your immune system. It helps you control your breathing. There are, there's, it's not stupid, right? Like, maybe it seems stupid, but it's not stupid. <laughs> and that's, a, that's a, trivial exa- a trivial example, and I don't want to minimize everyone, anyone's suffering, but like, the idea that we can be in the midst of suffering and recognize that even now, even in this pain, even when it's really, really bad, God is working something really, really good in it. We can find joy in that. And that doesn't mean, you know, joy is not some kind of superficial, yay kind of feeling. Joy is a deep-seated trust that God is good and we are safe in His hands. There's one more of this reference to First Chronicles. I don't have that memorized. I have to look at that. First Chronicles 21. Hmm. Yeah, David goes to the uh, to buy the the piece of land that the temple is going to be built on, and and the the owner wants to give the land to David, but he insists on paying the full price. He says, for I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David has this sense that this place is holy and it should be, um, should be paid for. And I think there's a just a, a, really, a really good reminder in all of that, that, that there is a cost to following Christ. There, oftentimes we, we talk about, you know, come to Jesus, you know, and He'll wash your sins away. Become a Christian. Say yes to the gospel. And we pitch it in such a way that, like, everything is so awesome about that. And it is, right? But it's also hard. It's difficult. I may have... It may be true that I have talked more people out of becoming Christians than I've actually talked into becoming Christians. Because I think it's important to tell people that if you want to follow Jesus, it will be the best decision you have ever made, and it will be hard. And I know I say this all the time, but the reason it's hard is because we're being transformed into new creations. And the path of transformation for most of us is through pain and loss and suffering because that's the path that Jesus walked. And for the person who just has a completely carefree life and just matures in Christ and everything's good all the time, like, praise God for you. Um, But for most of us, we are going to be made perfect through suffering, just like it says about Jesus. And we will bear that suffering well if we're prepared for it when it comes. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. And this is, this is this commemoration of Jesus' greatest moment of suffering. And we, we think about it every week. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived without sin, but he suffered for our sins more deeply than anyone in the history of the world. 
And while that seems like that would be like a, a, a mark against your religion, like your God died in weakness, it's a focal point of ours, right? Because Jesus didn't just suffer, he rose from the dead. He was victorious over death and the grave. And we are saved by his suffering. So as we, as we sing some more, I would invite you to the table to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Christ in the bread and the cup. Whether you are suffering deeply right now or whether things are pretty good, the table every week reminds us that as we take the elements into ourselves, we are joined with Jesus in his suffering. We have died with Christ, Paul says, and we live to Christ. Feel free to sit or stand as we sing. The prayer rugs are available if you'd like to uh, change the posture of your body while you pray. Let's worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.